It is great to see all of y'all here today on this wonderful Labor Day weekend where I don't know what y'all's Labor Day usually is like, but I tend to do more work on Labor Day weekend because I do stuff at the yard and other things like that. But we're so excited to have you here this morning as we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I would ask you to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 as we're going to continue to walk through the book of Ephesians, and just as a reminder to those who've been coming and to let you know if you are new, we are in a series right now titled Life in Christ, How His Story Changes Yours. And last week we talked about the gospel, which the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, about how our struggle with sin and, and, and our separation from God, God has sent Jesus to reconcile us back to himself. And last week we, we saw about how what God did for the problem of sin and humanity. Well, this week we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 2 as Paul is still using this theme of the gospel, but he's going to be talking differently about its effects on us as humans. And I'll start off by just saying this. It is almost a universal truth that what happens at the top affects every part of what's below. Or I'll say it this way. Vertical relationships always affect horizontal ones. I want you to think of it like this. In a company, if you have good leadership, what usually happens to the company? The company flourishes. Employees are happy. Things really go well, a.k.a. Chick-fil-A. One of the reasons they are as long-standing and the reputation they have is from the top down, they are led very well. Think about in a classroom. A lot of people start school back this week. If you have a teacher that teaches really well and is liked by the kids, it changes the demeanor of the classroom, Right? Think about a sporting team. If you have a coach who coaches his team very well and his players really like him and they connect with him, you'll find that that team usually does very well. And even at its most basic level, look at a family. Usually if families, if the parents are doing well, you see their children flourish. If parents are struggling, you typically see that and how siblings treat each other and how that goes. The whole point that I'm trying to make this morning is a vertical relationship, those above us, will always affect our horizontal relationships. So I want to follow that with this question. What did Jesus come to do? Why did Jesus come to earth? Most of us would answer that by saying Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when 100%, that is Jesus' purpose. We see that, the gospel, the good news, he came to save us. But Jesus also came so that he might unify all things to himself. And so the whole point that I'm trying to make this morning is that our vertical relationship with God has drastic horizontal implications. It drastically changes the way we view people. It drastically changes the way that we relate to other people and talk to other people and treat them. And this morning, what we're going to look at is the gospel's horizontal effects. How our relationship with God changes our relationship with other people. And specifically, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where Paul reminds the Ephesian church of how the gospel has affected their relationship with others, namely the Jewish nation. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father... God, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we see in your word. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would see the gospel's implications that it has, the effects that it has on our relationships in this world, the way we treat people, the way we talk to people, the way we see people. You have drastically changed everything through your son. Father, I pray this morning you would speak through your word and speak through your spirit through me. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin with verses 11 and 12. Paul starts by saying this, therefore, basically, based on the gospel, based on what God has done for us, therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're going to look at three reminders that Paul gives them. Remember, he starts here by saying, remember, remember. The first reminder is this. Remember that you used to be separated from God and his people. Remember that you used to be separated from God and his people. Y'all, rivalries have existed for as long as humans have been alive. I'm sure of it. I mean, there are rivalries all over the place. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some rivalries in the state of Kentucky. I think the University of Kentucky has a few. You know, I don't know how friendly they are to the volunteers in Tennessee. I think there's a little bit of a rivalry there. I've heard that Murray State and Belmont don't typically have the best of relationships. A little bit of a rivalry there also with Austin P. I I know Callaway County High School and Murray High School, though they really like each other. There's a rivalry there, right? Now, if you want to get more serious, Coke and Pepsi. There's a rivalry there, right? Like, if you're not a Coke fan, I don't know if you belong at Westside. No, I'm kidding. Pepsi's allowed. But Coke and Pepsi, there's this rivalry there, right? Los Portales or Don Sol. I've heard that argument a few times since I've been here. Dogs versus cats. You know, these silly little rivalries that we may have. But y'all, rivalries can be something that are small and can be fun. Rivalries even amongst schools. Murray and Callaway, that's probably a fun rivalry. It's fun to play against each other. It's fun to win. But there are some rivalries that aren't fun. They're, they're based out of a hatred. They're based out of bad blood and bad history. And if you've ever seen a rivalry like that, it is awful. It is rough. And this is one such rivalry that Paul is talking about here. It seems kind of confusing at first to go, you're going from the gospel to saying, remember, you used to be called the uncircumcision party and they were called the circumcision party. You kind of want to go, Paul, what are you talking about, right? Like, what's going on now? We just went from clear gospel to now this is confusing. Well, one of the problems in the Ephesian church is it was made up of Jewish people and Gentile believers. It was predominantly Gentile believers, meaning non-Jewish people. And the Gentiles and the Jews had an awful history. To put it simple, they absolutely despised each other. And I mean that in every sense of the way. The division that they even had there, we know nothing like in many ways in our world today. The Jews had sayings like this. They would say the Gentiles were created by God for the purpose of fueling the fire of hell. That's why they're here. Gentiles would say, or or Jews would say, the best of snakes you must crush, and the best of Gentiles deserve to be killed. They would say it was unlawful, actually, for a Jew to even help a Gentile in childbirth, for that would be considered as helping bring another heathen into the world. And possibly even worse, if a Jew were to ever marry a Gentile, the Jewish community would conduct a funeral service for the Jew. Basically, they considered them to be dead. The hate between these two groups was unimaginable. It was unreal. And now they're called to be in a church together, (laughs) a church service together, to worship God together. And Paul begins by reminding the Gentiles, look, you used to be separated from God because you were separated from God's people. And so he says here in verse 11, look again. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So there were two different parties here. The Jews called themselves the circumcision party. The Gentiles were known as the uncircumcision party. Now, in our mind, we might go circumcision. This is weird to even talk about. Well, circumcision had a huge part in the Jewish community. And I've never really fully dug into this, honestly, like I did this week to understand, okay, really, what's the goal of this? 
And what I found is most scholars would say that the covenant of circumcision was a reminder to all Jews that they were God's blessed nation. It goes back to Genesis chapter 17. Abraham, whenever he's 99 years old, hey, you're going to have a son. That's a shock, right? And then he has a kid whenever he's 100 years old. And God says, you must be circumcised and all males in the Israelite family will be circumcised after you. Which may seem strange, but every person that is born had a physical mark that you're a chosen people. You are a chosen people of God. And Jews saw this with so much pride. We are the circumcision party and you are the uncircumcised Gentiles. In other words, we're God's people and you are not. This brought great pride to the Jews and in their mind they were the true people of God and all other people were at best imposters. So you see fleshly division, circumcision party versus uncircumcision party. And we see that they were separated from God's people because they didn't have the mark of circumcision of God's people. But being separated from God's people meant that they were separated from all that God's people were blessed with. This is where Paul gets to in verse 12. He says, remember, because of your physical differences, because of the covenant difference there, remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of hope, having, or covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what's he saying? He's saying because you physically weren't a part of the Jewish community, there were other things that you had no part in. You were separated from the Messiah, no hope of a Savior. You were alienated from the nation of Israel. You weren't a part of them, therefore you didn't have a relationship with God. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. The scriptures, all the Old Testament was for the Hebrew people. And the Jews said you didn't have any part in this, and the Gentiles did not. He said, ultimately, you were hopeless, no future glory, no future promises, no future anything, and you were godless because you didn't serve the true and rightful king who is Jesus. These were the labels that were given to them. You know, all of us know something about labels in our world today. Labels. We label people. We label churches. I'm sure that this goes on here where those type of people go to that church or this type of people go to that church. We throw labels on people. I mean, whenever I was in college, and I started learning about the sorority row and, and Greek life. And I was told, you know, these are the type of people that are in that sorority. You know, if you're this type of person, that's where you go. People get labels, right? I've had different labels throughout my life. I realize I forgot a recent one as of late. Uh, several months ago, actually, whenever I was still in Ruston, I had somebody come up to me and say, are you Merrick Nunn? I'm like, yeah, I am. I said, okay, good. I was looking for you. They told me just to go find the bald-headed, bearded guy. It's like, awesome. Well, you have found him. That is me. I guess that's my new label which it could be worse. I could be the bald-headed, bearded, big-nosed guy. I'm just bald-headed and bearded. I like that. But all of us have labels, right? Whether we like the label or we don't, we attach labels to people. I want you to imagine this as your label. This is how they were labeled. Paul's writing to them and saying, remember, you used to be labeled. You were separated. You were alienated. You were estranged. You were hopeless. You were godless. And the Jews would look at a Gentile and say, that's who you are. Truly, they used to be separated from God because they were separated from God's people. But we don't understand this type of exclusivism. Imagine somebody coming to you and saying, hey, I'm sorry, Jesus didn't die for you. I'm sorry, he isn't here for you. I'm sorry, the Bible isn't meant for you. This is what they were doing. And Paul begins about talking about horizontal relationships saying, remember where you used to be. You used to be separated from God and his people. Then he moves on to the second reminder he gives them. You used to be separated from God and his people, but remember now you have been reconciled to God as a new people. You used to be separated from God and his people, but now you've been reconciled to God as a new people. Look at verse 13. 
He says, but now, another great conjunction. We saw that in verse 4 last week. But God and what he's done. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who used to be far away, you, you were strangers to the covenants of hope. You were strangers to the Messiah. You were strangers to the benefits of knowing God. You now have been brought near through Jesus. You see, ultimately what Paul does in verse 11 of this text is interesting. He basically says earlier that circumcision and uncircumcision, both are in the flesh, meaning they don't matter for anything. The physical difference wasn't the main problem between Jew and Gentile. The big problem was their heart condition. But Jesus has fixed that. Jesus has brought those who far. He's brought them near, and their spiritual issues have been resolved in Christ. That's what chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are all about. But Paul says that to lead into this, this question that's looming over this church. What about our relationship with the Jews? And Jews are saying, what about our relationship with the Gentiles? We are too different. We aren't even the same people. The Jews view us as this. The Gentiles view us as this. What about that difference? And this is where Paul moves to in verses 14 through 16, and really the bulk and the meat of this part of Scripture. Paul says this, For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In short, what does this say? The hostility that used to be there between Jew and Gentile, Jesus has brought peace. That's the first part to start here in verse 14. He himself is our peace. He has brought peace in these two areas that used to be so separate. But Paul then goes to explain how he did this. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. Y'all hear me. For a Jew to hear that, they would have been disgusted. God in Christ has made us one with those people, the people made for hell, the people made for that. They're not with us. And you see Paul actually discussing this in Romans, chapters 9 through 11. That's the purpose of Romans 9 through 11. How did God's chosen people miss it and the Gentiles get it? But Paul here is mainly talking to Gentiles. And he's saying, recognize that you both are one. How has he made both of us one in Christ? And he lays out four things right here. One, he says, he has broken down all physical divisions between you two. He has broken down, Jesus has broken down all physical divisions between you two. Look again at verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, when we talk about the dividing wall of hostility, here, this can be something that, that is, is, is not necessarily like in person. It doesn't have to be a physical wall, but for Jews and Gentiles, there was a physical wall that separated them from each other. I got a picture of the temple for you. The Jewish temple looked somewhat like this. <clears throat> this is Herod's temple. And around the outside, if you were to go inside the outside barrier, you would be in what's known as the temple area. That outside area is called the court of the Gentiles. They're allowed to go in there, but what you see in the middle is the actual temple of God. And Gentiles were not allowed to go in there. If you went in through the, the door into the temple, you'd meet, be in the air from the court of Gentiles. You'd go to the court of women. This is as far as Israelite women were allowed to go. You go into the next chamber, it's the court of the Israelites, so Israelite men can go there. You go into the next chamber, it's the court of priests, and only the priests could go in there, and next was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there. 
Now think about this. The Gentiles all their known life had to look at a wall that kept them outside of the temple. God is not for you. You do not have access to him. This would have been a four to five foot wall that circled the whole temple and Gentiles could go up to it and no further. In the 1800s, they dug up archaeological findings, found old inscriptions, old things that would be put on the wall there that literally read, if you're a Gentile and you cross over this wall, you have just conceded to your execution. Cross over the wall and you die. This place is not for you. God is not for you. For all intents and purposes, this wall represented the fact that they were separated from God and they were not God's people. They were second rate at best. And what's crazy is as Paul is writing this, the wall still stood. It was destroyed in AD 70, but before then, in the AD 50s, whenever Paul would have written this book, it was still standing. And what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter if you see a wall. God and Jesus has broken down the division. He's broken down the wall of hostility. It is no longer keeping you from him. He broke down the physical divisions. Secondly, he says, you have become one because he has broken down the spiritual divisions. And if we thought the physical divisions were tough for them, the spiritual divisions were even worse. Look at verse 15. It says, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You see, whenever Jesus came and died, He fulfilled so much of the Old Testament law, the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament based on what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat, based on how you have to sacrifice animals, circumcision, these dietary regulations, rules about ritual cleanness and uncleanliness. These were to keep a people holy, but Jesus has nullified. He has fulfilled all the ceremonial laws because he was the perfect son of God. He was the perfect sacrifice, and now they no longer can become holy based on what they do, eat or drink, but they become holy because of Jesus. And y'all, interesting note about this. Can you imagine this still being the case for us if we had dietary regulations to be a follower of Jesus? Imagine trying to evangelize to someone and saying, oh, but also if you become a Christian, you cannot eat bacon. That would be a stifler, right? Mainly for kids. Kid baptism's gone down there, right? But really though, Jesus came and he broke down all these ceremonial laws. But Jesus also broke down parts of the moral law. You see, the Old Testament gives us morals of how we're called to live, and we still are to follow them, but in Jesus, these are no longer a means to our salvation. Jesus is the means of salvation, which he said at the beginning of this chapter, by grace through faith alone in him can we become followers of Jesus. And what we see, Jesus in his flesh broke down the hostility that they had in the flesh. By giving of his body, he broke down the hostility that they had with each other. In other words, Christ's sacrifice brought us closer to God by breaking down the barrier of sin that separated us, but Christ's sacrifice also broke down the barriers of hostility and differences that we have with each other. Now, y'all, I recognize this is a lot of content. This is a lot of background. And for many of you, you might think, does this even matter to us today? And I would tell you 100% it does. If you were to look at our world today and give one word summation of our world, what would you say? of our country, of our state, of possibly even our county. I'll tell you the word that I would use, divided, period. Across the board, we are divided in almost every way. We have so many divisive issues going on right now, we honestly can't even keep up with all of them. But, y'all, one of the problems is, is I've heard so many people act like these divisions have been brought about as of recently. You know, coronavirus brought out these divisions, 
George Floyd, that, that's what made this division there. The injustice, the rallies, that made the divisions there. This has not made any divisions. It has just brought to the surface the divisions we've already always had. We've always had divisions in our country and in our world, whether it's race or nationality or nations or religions or genders or social and economic classes, political parties, denominations, schools, communities, and families. We have always been divided on issues. And the problem is, y'all, as we sometimes look at the world like there's a problem out there. Hear me. It's the plague of humanity. You will always be divided until you have something that unifies you. And the problem for Christians today, our biggest problem, is not the division that's out there. It's the division that is in here. Our biggest problem is not the division that's going on in America. It's the way the church is responding to it. That is our biggest problem. And hear me. I'll show you this. There are two ways that we still struggle with this. The church and the way they talk to or think about or treat somebody who's not a believer. Y'all, we can be so divisive in the way that we look at people who aren't Christians. In our rhetoric, we can even look like the Jews at times with the mindset that we have towards people who aren't believers in Jesus. We can look at ourselves as better than them. We can look at ourselves as superior to them. We can look at ourselves through the lens of righteousness and the lens of the people out there through the lens of sinner. We can pronounce judgment on people who go and get drunk, who sleep around, who have affairs, who do drugs, who get tattoos, who don't go to church, and the list can go on. The problem with the church is we've always excelled at picking up rocks and throwing them at people who act like they don't know Jesus. Y'all hear me. If you and I didn't know him, we would not be any different. Their problem is not that they're just acting wrong. The problem is that they don't know Jesus, and we who do should live differently. We should look differently. We should act differently. And, y'all, we all do this in some way, whether it's the way you glance at people that don't look like you, whether it's the words you use for people who don't act like you, whether it's the actions that you take, whether it's the gossip, whether it's your social media feed, we all struggle in this area of casting judgment on people whenever we are not called to do so. We are not the judge in this thing. God is. We're not called to judge the sin of the outside world. We're called more so to judge the sin that's in here. In our own pews. And hear me, I'm not saying you don't stand up and speak up about issues that are going outside of the walls of this church. I'm saying you do so as Jesus would with love. Do your words promote unity or division? Do your words help you win an argument? If you win an argument but lose a person, hear me, you've lost. If you win an argument but tarnish the reputation of the church, hear me, you've lost. It's not about winning or losing. It's about living in such a way they can't help but see there's something different about us. But that's the problem in all of this. For the church, we have been caught scrambling, speaking about issues out there because we're not able to be examples of how we handle issues in here. Even within the church, we struggle. We aren't just divided with people outside. We're divided inside the church. And I'll just give two basic examples that this text speaks on. Racially, the church is divided. It is. I've heard it said before that one of the most segregated times of the week is Sunday morning. When the black people go to the black church, the white people go to the white church, the Asian people go to the Asian church, the Middle Eastern people go to the Middle Eastern church, we go to our own respective peoples to worship God as if we don't worship the same God. In race relations with us, Hasn't gotten much better. Our country is badly divided on this issue, no doubt. But so often we are too. Y'all, it doesn't matter in God's eyes if you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Middle Eastern, or whatever. Our problem is is that we are bent to want to gather to people that look like us and act like us. That is in our nature, period. 
That's what we want to do. But the problem is, is while it's in our nature, for a Christian, it's not biblical. For a Christian, you're divided by those things no more. But you are unified through something so much stronger, and that is through your relationship with Jesus. And while racially we seem to be divided, y'all, in the church also, we can be socioeconomically divided. We can see divisions based on how much somebody makes or the way we treat people, if they make more. You know, I've, I have plenty of friends who are doctors, and Rustin specifically, he said whenever he moved to the area, everybody was vying for him. I've never had anybody do that for me whenever I moved in and I was working at, as a waiter at the local grill, you know. So often we can treat people differently based on how much they make. James 2, 1 to 12 speaks vehemently against that, of how we must treat all people the same. We must look at all people the same who are in the church. You know, the whole point that Paul is trying to make and that I'm trying to make is this. Our relationship with God is best expressed in how we treat others, specifically in how we treat others who do not look or act like us. Our relationship with God is best expressed in how we treat other people. If we love God, then the byproduct of that should be that we love others. And in Jesus, these divisions have been broken down. Verses 15 through 18 explain this even more. He says he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's removed the divisions of physical differences. He's removed the spiritual differences. But third, he's also created a new humanity in Jesus. Now, this is, this is crazy to see what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying you two are no longer two different peoples, but you are one together. Look at the words he used. He's made us both one, one new man together, one body, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. We are a new humanity if we are in Jesus. Paul talks about this even later on in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying you aren't no longer identified in any of those ways, but that's no longer a dividing issue for you, a dividing factor for you. You are one in Christ. Peter says this best in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. He says, those who are in Christ, you are a chosen race. Do you hear that? If you are in Christ, you no longer are your born race anymore. Your race is, I'm a follower of Jesus. You're unified based on your race. A royal priesthood, you're unified in your responsibility. Priests were to represent God to the people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that is what you are called to do, to represent God to the world around you. He says you're a holy nation. You found your influence in Jesus as salt and light. You are a people for his own possession. You find your value in this and this alone, that you're a son or daughter of the king. And look at what he says our unified purpose is, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Y'all, do you hear what that's saying? The implications of this are massive. It means this. You and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have more in common with a person who lives in Iran and is a believer than you do your neighbor who is not. You have more unified with other people who are followers of Jesus who live all across the world than you do a fellow American that has the same political views as you but does not know Jesus. The main thing, the primary thing that must unify us is not our own preferences. It is Jesus 
and what he's done for us. The gospel did not just save us in relation to our reconciliation with God. It reconciled us to other humans where we have always been divided. And as the church, we must look differently. We must act differently. We must be different. And I understand if I'm in here, I'm in Murray, and it's not like we're the most diverse area that is around. I would tell you once again, what does your speech say about you? How do you act around your friends and your family? What jokes do you make? How do you talk about people that look different than you, that act different than you? What does your social media feed say? Do your words unite or do they divide? I'm telling you, Jesus, the only divisive words he used was to Christian leaders who abused their power. To other people, he loved them. And it made no sense to his disciples. The way we love other people who are different from us should be so shocking to people who don't know Jesus that they want to know about him. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's who we are supposed to be. We are unified as a new humanity. And then he finishes in verse 17 and 18 on this thought. It says, and Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those of you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's made us both one, one new man, one new body, and he's given all of us access through one spirit. To say he preached peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near is actually a reference back to Isaiah 57, 19, where it says the Messiah will one day come and he will bring peace to those who are far off. And he will bring peace to those who are near. Paul is saying Jesus has come and he has done that. He has brought peace. He has brought reconciliation. And he ends by saying we both have access to God in the same way. Think of it like this. If you're going to a place, if you have a destination, and there's only one road to get there, it doesn't matter what your car looks like, right? It doesn't matter what you drive. It doesn't matter if you walk, bike, or ride in a Mercedes. Either way, that's the one access point to the destination. And that's what Paul's saying here. We all have access to God in the exact same way. No advantage to anyone. No one is better than anyone else. Divisions have been broken down and reconciliation wins. A movie came out several years ago called Remember the Titans. I know it was extremely popular. I know a lot of people watched it, but if you haven't, basically the movie is set back during the time of of desegregation, whenever they were desegregating schools. And many of you experienced that. You understand the hostile nature of what that was like. But in the movie, it talks about how these two different schools came together, a white school and a black school. They came together. And as they were together, they they had to work through their differences. And it did not go very well at all. Specifically, it, it focuses in on the football team and how the football team had a black head coach now and a white assistant coach and half black players and half white players. And they had to now find some way to come together and compete, and it was not looking like it was going to work very well. The movie kind of comes to its climax whenever the, the coach, who's played by Denzel Washington, wakes everybody up in the middle of the night, and they run for hours, and they go to a grave site, a grave site that mirrors that of the Civil War, and he says, guys, if we don't act different, we are no better. We're not going to be any different than these guys. We will die not, not changing. We're still dealing with these struggles and some of these issues that were fought for in our past. And then you go to a practice scene. And to me, this is the most powerful scene in the movie. We see a guy named Gary Bertier, who's the white middle linebacker. He's the anchor of the defense. But to his left side, which is known as the strong side, is this guy named Julius Campbell, who's a black guy. And these two guys had been duking it out. Both captains of their former team, now they're together, they're duking it out. And all of a sudden, in a practice one night, you see the offensive team play, and the quarterback gets it, and he runs out, and he options it out to the running back. 
The second he passes it to the running back, Gary Bertier smokes the quarterback. The second the running back catches it, Julius Campbell smokes the running back. And you see Gary Bertier get up, and he walks over to Julius Campbell, and he pushes him, and he just yells out, left side. And Julius Campbell pushes him back and says, strong side. He says, left side, strong side, left side, strong side. And there's this powerful moment, and it pans the whole group as they finally see we're working together. But what, what made them work together? It wasn't a love for each other. It was a love for football. We even see this today. Sports unifies us in so many ways. If you're on a team, it can unify you in so many ways. But hear me. If the love of a sport can overcome racial differences, shouldn't the love of Christ do that times 100? Shouldn't our love for Christ and what he's done for us radically affect the way that we look at other people? And y'all, this is not just a black and white problem. That's just brought to the surface here. It is a problem across all of the known world. We have struggles with people who are not like us. And what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, is that is no more. I'll never forget whenever I worked at Kids Across America. I told y'all a story about that last week. It was pretty much an all-black camp. I was one of the few white people, and I struggled there at first because culturally it was just different. But you know what I learned from my time around the African-American community? They know family like I do not. Once I was one of them, it was crazy. They would do anything for me. Just being honest, I don't have many white friends that would do that for me. You know why? Because culturally, we're different. But culturally, whenever we come together, we become what God made us to be. Instead of fighting on our preferences, we're to enhance our preferences and learn from each other and follow Jesus together. And that is what Paul is trying to say. Jew and Gentile, I don't care. Your common interest of your love for Christ and his love for you should unify you over any of your differences. Divisions are gone. Peace has been brought in the midst of hostility. And that's what Paul wants to remind them. You've been reconciled to God as a new people. Don't let anybody label you elsewise. Don't let anybody treat you as a second-rate Christian. Rather, treat them with love one together and go and influence the world showing them what it looks like to be the people of God which leads to the third and final point that we are established in God as his people we've been separated from God as his people they were reconciled to God as a new people and third he says I want to remind you you've been established in God as his people this last week Emily and I both went to get our licenses changed you know, before, if somebody were to say, let me see your ID, I would have pulled out my wallet and given you a license that had Louisiana on it. Now, whether you want it or not, there are stereotypes that come with your license, right? You know, since I'm from Louisiana, they're shocked I have all my teeth. They're shocked my beard isn't down to here. They think all I want to do is duck hunt, kill gators, or ride them one or the other. And all I want to do is shoot guns, right? Like, that's, that's the Louisiana stigma. I go mudding every weekend. You know, that's what I do, right? But now that I'm a Kentuckian, I don't even know what stereotype I have, if I'm honest. I don't even know what that means. All I know is my identification used to be a Louisianian. Now I am a Kentuckian. Hopefully I'm saying that right, because I don't even know. But I'm identified now as a Kentucky resident. And with that comes a new identification. And what Paul leads to next is he talks about how your identification has changed. Look at verses 19 through 22 as we finish up this text. Paul says, so... Based on all this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but this is your new ID. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members 
of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see what he says there? He says, you are no longer what you used to be. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are citizens together in Christ. You're a citizen of God's kingdom the same way a Jew is. You now are family together. You have the same father as each other. You now are stones of the temple. Y'all, this is crazy. Think about this. Can you imagine being a Gentile reader and being told your whole life you cannot go past this wall into the temple? And now Paul is saying, you are a part of the temple. Because you know what? You don't have to go to be in front of the presence of the Lord. His spirit now resides in you. And you are a part of the temple of the Lord. Can you imagine what that would be like for a Gentile? It would be incredible. And y'all, these words here are actually really interesting. Paul says that you are citizens together, your family together, you're joined together. In the Greek, all these nouns begin with the prefix sin, S-Y-N, which means sync. You have been synced up with one another. I don't know how many of you really sync up your devices, but I have an iPhone, an iPad, and a MacBook. And if I sync up my devices, it means what's on my phone is also on my iPad. What's on my iPad is also on my computer. One of the reasons I like it is I can do stuff on any three of them, and it always syncs between each other. And Paul says that's what God has done with you. Y'all have been synced up. What defines them defines you now as well. Interestingly enough, this is the same three-word phrase that Paul uses whenever he talks about we've been synced up with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been seated with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ. You've been synced up with God, but you've been synced up with each other as well, as fellow citizens, as family members, and as stones of the temple. Now, to put it simply, what does this mean? It means if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul is saying, you belong here. You belong here. How many of us in our lives spend our lives trying to fit in in certain places? How many of us in our lives try and fit in in different areas or different groups how much even worse whenever we come and we have to fit in to be in the church? We're not called to make people fit in. We're called to tell people who are followers of Jesus, this is where you belong. You have a place here. I don't care what you look like, how much you make. I don't care your past. I don't care about any of that. If you know Jesus, you belong here. And if you don't know Jesus, come on. We want to help you come to know him because this is where you belong. And y'all, one of the biggest problems with our churches is we equate being nice to people with inviting them into our lives. And there is a massive difference there. You know, we may be nice whenever people walk in. If they're visitors, it's easy to just be nice to people. Y'all, we're in the South. It's kind of our plague, right? We're nice to people. There's a difference in inviting people into our square, though, our building, and inviting them into our circles. There's a difference in me saying hey to somebody and talking to them a little bit and actually inviting them into my life. Tell them know who I am, to invite them into my home, to invite them into what God is doing in my life and wanting to be a part of what God is doing in theirs. And that's what the church is, is you belong here. Let's do life together. God has established his church in Christ, and we are to live like it. Y'all, this is an incredible, incredible fact. We are established as the church of God. I know I talked to you about Patty's last week, which is always a sin to do right before lunchtime. But this past week, I actually got to go to Patty's again. I got to go to Patty's, took my parents, 
And what it says, and if you walk into Patty's, established, 1977. Established. What does that established word mean? It talks about our longevity. It's, it, it's, a, it's a length of time where we've been, had excellence, right? Next year, Westside will, will experience its 40th year anniversary of an established church. But what Paul is telling them here, and what he's telling us as well, is the church was established 2,000 years ago. If we had a mark on the outside of our church that really wanted to say when we were established, it would say A.D. 33, whenever the blood came off of Jesus. That's who we're established in. And as being a people established in Christ, we are to live like it. Y'all, the church is unlike anything else in this world. You look at great sports teams, great groups to be a part of something. I think of like Miracle, the Miracle on Ice, 1980, whenever the United States went against the Soviet Union and there was this great division, right? America was supposed to get pummeled because they were a bunch of amateurs and the Soviet Union was all professionals. If you've seen the movie Miracle, you've seen it well. But you talk to people who were on that team and they talk about how incredible it was to be a part of that team and to experience victory over the Soviet Union. You talk about people who have been a part of great teams in the past, and they'll tell you how great it was to go and accomplish something. Well, hear me. The greatest team ever assembled is the church. And God has not created us for one singular event. He's created us to continue his mission going on. I don't know about you all, but I want to be a part of something great. And to do that, you just be a part of the church. You jump in, and you love people, and you serve people, and you join a membership, which doesn't mean you come and you just sit inside. It means you give your time, your energy, your resources to see the mission of the church push forward, to see God's message push forward, to see people in Murray, in Kentucky, the U.S., around the world come to know Jesus. The church is unlike anything else because we're unified in a person who's unlike anyone else. In Jesus, all of our differences are made void as identifiers. That doesn't mean we don't have differences. It means we come together and we work through them, together as God's people. This is who we want to be as Westside. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, what you look like. You have a place here. You belong. The three reminders that Paul gives them of the horizontal effects, don't forget you used to be separated from God and his people. But remember that God has reconciled you to himself as a new people. And lastly, recognize he's established you as his people. And we're called to live like it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would be with all of us this morning. As we look at this text, Lord, that even in its nature, it is divisive. Jews and Gentiles alike did not take to what he was saying. Hence why we see even later, whenever he has to write to describe it even more so to the Jews because of their struggle with this. God, I pray this morning for everyone in here who says they're a follower of Jesus, give us clear sight. How do we go wrong here, Lord? How are we missing here? How have we forgotten the horizontal effects of the gospel? Lord, please reveal it to us this morning. The only response to this text, Lord, is repenting in areas where we need to repent and turning and following you, being different, being a difference maker. That doesn't mean we don't have a backbone, that we don't stand up for issues, but God, we stand against issues, not people. Help us stand on your word and your word alone. Help us leave our preferences to the side for the sake of your kingdom. 
God, make us the people that you've called us to be, unified with a singular purpose, with a singular influence, because we have value in your eyes. Help us respond to you this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as Mike and Shane play, and as Shane's going to be singing, just about how much we need Jesus, I would ask you this morning, how do you need to respond to the message? Maybe this morning you hear about, about how God has brought people who are far off near. And the problem this morning has nothing to do with the horizontal effects. You still don't have your vertical relationship with God intact. Maybe this morning you need to repent and surrender your life to Jesus. You need to give your life to him. I would invite you to do that now where you're sitting. Repent and surrender your life to Christ. But if you say this morning, Merrick, I'm a follower of Christ, I would ask you, what dividing walls are still up in your mind and life? What dividing walls are still up? Maybe it's with somebody's race or nationality or socioeconomic status or some other difference. I would ask you, what does your speech say about how you think of other people? How do you talk about people who are different from you? Do you ascribe labels to them? I would ask you, what does your Facebook or Instagram say? Some of you today need to go home and go back and delete things that have no unifying effect but only are there to divide people. Remember, our representation is we represent Christ. If he isn't going to stand and die on that hill, I'm not either. Once again, that doesn't mean you don't have a backbone. It means you have to be wise recognizing who you represent. Maybe it's asking, do what we say or do promote unity or is it division? Many of us this morning, we are really good at arguing, but our problem is we care more about winning the argument than saving a people, seeing a people coming to know Jesus. Don't win an argument and lose a person. That's an apologetics on Christianity. Don't win an argument and lose a person. That's with anything that we do here. We represent Christ. Last, I would ask you, what is your view of the church? Maybe this morning you need to look and see that you've had an individualistic viewpoint of church. You know what? I can follow Jesus just as well from my bedside table, from my room. And no, you can't. You weren't made to do so. That's why many of you, if you've watched church online, you recognize there's something different because that's not the way it's meant to be. It's great to have the technology, but it's not meant to be separated. If we built a building and put bricks all over the county, we would be in trouble. We're meant to assemble and come together. Maybe this morning you need to recognize you haven't been doing your part as a member at Westside. Or maybe this morning you need to consider membership. I know with coronavirus, all that's kind of haywire. But maybe you need to think about being a part of somewhere, saying, I'm going to invest my time, resources, and energy here. Do you take membership seriously for what it is? Y'all, in a world that is divided and always has been divided, and I'm going to be honest, always will be divided, we must be distinctly different. I want to encourage you as you're sitting there and as the band plays, repent where you need to, turn to Christ where you need to, and respond this morning.